All right, well, I'm going to kick us off. Uh, ben, welcome, and welcome to the attendees. Uh, to uh, I think this is our, our fourth um, episode in our speaker series, uh, and we've had, and, and I guess our second ice cream guest, because we've had uh, Sean Greenwood from Ben & Jerry's uh, to kick it, kick it oh. off uh, the first time. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear uh, kind of contrasts and, and uh, similarities between the two. Um, I'm the co-founder of Voice, uh, and I just want to quickly introduce um, uh, Ben and then hand it over to the host, uh, who is Elisa Zhang, who has a personal connection to Van Luen that she can explain. Um, and so just to quickly introduce Ben, um, he founded uh, Van Luen, I think back in uh, 2008, uh, right out of school, he went to Skidmore. Um, and started with one truck in New York. And my figures may be dated, but um, he's growing to 25 stores, has 20 million in revenue, um, sells through another thousand stores in 44 states. So Anduin has been a huge success story. Um, and for those of you that have tried the ice cream, um, you can kind of figure out why that is. Um, and so that's just a quick intro. Ben, welcome. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Elisa um, because this is a student show. So uh, I will let her take it from here. Yeah. Um, so hi, my Thank name you. Is <laughs> um, my name's Elisa, and I'm in my last semester of undergrad at Cornell. And I wanted to bring Ben on to our speaker series because I've uh, worked in Van Leeuwen stores for two summers in 2018 and in this uh, past summer, 2020, which is also when I started interning at Voice. Um, so I was obviously thinking about sustainability while I was working there. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to hear uh, Ben's thoughts about what you know running a, a business and sustain sustainability means um, in tandem. Um, just to introduce Voice a little bit, we're a collective of college age Gen Zs that are really trying to increase transparency when it comes to the sustainability of the everyday item that me, you, and everyone else buys. Um, so, but the thing is, we also know that sustainability is not black and white. So in our speaker series, we really just want to have transparent conversations with people and industry professionals about um, sustainability, if they've struggled with it, or even like any trade-offs they've had to make. Um, so we want to know what's going on um, in the minds of people who are creating the products that we're reviewing. Uh, with all that said, yeah, we want to talk to you about sustainability sustainability, but I think it's also really cool to hear about um, yourself and a little bit of your own story. Uh, so we can start off by um, you telling us a little bit about your life pre-Van Leeuwen. My life pre-Van Leeuwen. So sustainability and Van Leeuwen aside, yeah. I was born yeah. in Connecticut and I grew up there. One of four kids, the youngest. Um, my family was, for that time, really into food nothing compared to foodies of today, but my dad was from, well, originally from Amsterdam, but grew up in the Caribbean and was just sort of really into cooking, kind of in the way that foodies are now. And my mom had more of a culinary heritage. Her mom was raised by a, a private cook in Portland, Oregon. So we grew up eating a lot of stuff that my dad would try to make, Chinese food, Thai food. And then my mom would make sort of traditional middle European dishes. So goulash and chicken soup with big flour dumplings. So food was, was a big part of our family's life, but again, you know, not to the extent of obsession that it's approached um, with now by people who are interested in food. And I went to high school in Greenwich, Connecticut, went on to go to college, took a year off college, 
um, with money that I actually saved from driving good humor ice cream trucks. So that's a big part of the story. Um, when I was in high school, I needed a summer job and I saw an ad to drive a good humor truck, which for those of you who don't know, those are the trucks that sell like ice cream bars that are considered premium quality, which to us is very low quality. So a chocolate eclair bar, a strawberry shortcake bar, a red, white, and blue popsicle. So I sold those for two summers. And after the second summer, I saved up enough money um, from working really hard, you know, like 14 hours every single day for five months to travel around the world by myself doing that, um, which you know, I was so lucky to get to do that and have the opportunity to save that money. Um, <clears throat> but doing that was for me, like the most exciting and formative food experience I had ever had because I went to places where what I considered to be good food um, wasn't special. So to me, it was very exciting going to Vietnam and Thailand and Spain and Italy and going to bus stations there and finding food that was better that most, than it is at most restaurants in the US. I mean, to an extent, obviously New York's a different story. Um, but the idea of this like normal, completely accessible, really tasty food got me excited. I didn't think about starting an ice cream truck then. Fast forward, I'm finishing college. Um, I was never a great student in college. I loved learning and was really interested in a lot of stuff, but didn't perform that well in terms of grades. So I needed something to do. I couldn't get a traditional really good job in banking, which a lot of kids from where I grew up with from did so I thought why don't we do an ice cream truck and sell really good ice cream off of that truck so I saved well I didn't really save up money because I didn't, I didn't have a job that paid me very much after college I worked in restaurants I saved what I could wrote a business plan and raised 60,000 bucks and bought a used ice cream truck on eBay contracted a factory in upstate New York to make a few hundred gallons of ice cream for our first day on the streets and, and that was that was sort of the start condensed version but that's really cool um because you kind of made your own opportunities uh which is yeah that's awesome um so did you did you start van Loon as an ice cream company because you did the good humor truck or um did you think about like doing other types of food or was ice cream like it for you um well, certainly the truck aspect was because I had run the good humor truck. I saw value in that because you were able to operate in really expensive markets with lower overhead. So, which, which now we sort of think about differently. We don't do trucks in New York City anymore other than for catering and events. But when you have 60,000 bucks to start a food retail business in New York City, uh, maybe you can do it now after the pandemic, but like, doing a storefront and brick and mortar with that's virtually impossible. I mean, for a first time operator that wouldn't even cover your security deposit on the store. <laughs> so the truck was a great opportunity there. Um, and why ice cream? I, I guess we knew it. Yeah, we knew it. We, you know, weren't that confident, you know, I had never done anything on my own before. So I wanted to do something that I knew. Yeah. Um, and it was a good bet because Van Lewis <clears throat> super well, which I learned from my first day on the job. Um, I was working on Tuesday night at the uh, Williamsburg location in 2018. And the line was crazy out the door. Like it was insane. Um, so Van Loon is growing super quickly uh, and it's expanding into wholesale. So like, I, I live in DC now and I'm like, I'm seeing it in a bunch of stores near me. 
Um, and you're also building a lot of new stores. So one actually opened up in my neighborhood uh, in New York City uh, this within this past year. Um, but what do you what does Van Leeuwen look like 10 years from now in your eyes? So 10 years from now, we plan on between now and 10 years, growing our wholesale business more rapidly. So getting into more grocery stores, doing product line extensions, doing more flavors and continuing to innovate in any way we can um, with the objective of just making things that people want to eat more of and that make people happy because that's how we'll do it. In terms of our brick and mortar stores, we do want to continue expanding there. We're expanding into two new markets this year, Houston and Philadelphia. Um, so continue to grow both wholesale and retail um, and really just listen to the customer and be attuned to the sort of what, what I've been calling like the collective palette. Um, I think what tastes good to people now might be different than what tastes good to them 10 years ago. And I think that'll be different in 10 years. So I think our ice cream is awesome. Like yesterday afternoon, I ate an entire pint of our new peppermint stick, which is a seasonal. And I was like, this is absolutely perfect. But I know in 10 years, I, I think in 10 years, things will be a little bit different with taste. Um, whether that's a taste for less sugar or I, I think sugar is going to be the big thing. I think because of the FDA's requirement to um, publish added sugar on packaging, a lot of big CPG manufacturers are slowly bringing sugar down. So it's kind of like retraining the palate. Um, so our palates are trained, most Americans' palates are trained to have like a really high threshold for what's sweet and what's, you know, and a low threshold for what's not sweet enough. Um, but I think that would be a good thing because sugar's not healthy. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, obviously ice cream is like pretty high in sugar. And if you want good tasting ice cream, you know, you, you need some sugar in it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched one of your other interviews and I there was something interesting in there um, that you said Van Leeuwen is like more grassroots than some people may like know um, and I was just wondering like what were some struggles that you went through as a company or, or were there was there ever even a point where you thought like it's not gonna work I never thought it wouldn't work um, I just recently heard a quote from the it was the founder of Paramount Pictures who passed away a few months ago. And I was just listening to an article in The Economist. And one of his famous quotes was, success is built off failure, frustration, and sometimes catastrophe. <laughs> and I never thought about that quote or thought about it in that way, but I think we operated in that way because we were forced to for 10 years. For the first 10 years, we were just running off that 60,000 bucks we started with. And a lot went wrong. Um, and when, I'll give you an example of one thing. Um, <clears throat> I think in our second year in business or our third year in business, the year before that, we ended the year with almost a million dollars in cash, our second year in business. Um, I mean, the, the payroll was me and my two business partners. We lived in an $1,100 a month apartment that we shared and we're just taking enough money to eat. So we were able to save a lot and instead of saying, cool, let's put, you know, 50% of this away and use the other 50% to grow. I mean, there was not sophisticated financial planning or accounting. We just said, awesome, let's build three more trucks and let's open three stores. So we built three stores, we opened three more trucks and 
everything was successful, the new stores, the trucks, but we ran out of cash. And I was like, okay, let's just um, stop paying sales tax. We can just pay the sales tax when, when we can afford to a little later. And I thought it's probably better just not to file it either. So for like, I think a year, we just didn't pay or file any sales tax. And then we got a massive bill and a fine for like $250,000. And I think we probably had $50,000 in the bank at that point. So we were like, holy shit, what's going to happen? And then they put a lien on our bank account, took the $50,000, which they should have, right? We should have been paying sales tax. But I guess moments like that, and I'm not, not, not to say that I'm a especially great person, but I think entrepreneurially, I'm really good because I can't believe it looking back. I didn't let it get me down at all. We, um, around the same time, we had applied for a Chase small business grant of $250,000. And a few weeks after that happened, we won the grant. They sent us a check for $250,000 and we paid the sales tax bill. So it was like kind of insane luck. Um, but, but a, a lot of it too is like staying positive. You know, I could have just thrown up my hands and like, forget it. I'm too stressed to even apply for this grant right now, but um, just sort of staying positive and, and, and taking a, I guess, sort of like cosmic view of everything has always helped me just thinking about how inconsequential I am in the universe and what I do. That makes everything feel a lot less stressful. Wow. You should run a, a stress relief podcast or something like that. That's really incredible. Um, did you, did you not have like an accountant that was like telling you this is probably not okay to not do sales tax? No, I mean, in those days, it was just me and my partners, Peter and Laura, you yeah. know, do, doing all the, the administrative side of everything. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so after that crazy story, um, uh, we obviously wanted to bring you on to talk about sustainability and, you know, what that means for Van Leeuwen. Um, but just talking about sustainability in general, what do you see as your personal role in sustainability as an entrepreneur? And like, I guess, how did it change from when you first started to now? Mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is just like voting and making sure Trump doesn't win would be the best thing we could do for sustainability. Um, but overall, before I get to like how we think about it as a company at Van Leeuwen, um, I, I, I read an article in the New Yorker a few weeks ago about sugar. And I sort of mentioned some of what I learned in it before, but <clears throat> for the last 70 years, um, food scientists have been trying to develop sweeteners that have no calories. And now they're developing something that's a, it isn't a sweetener, it's cane sugar, but it has a different kind of viscosity. So it sits on your palate for a longer time and therefore you need much less of it. So normally, according to what I read, when you eat a sugar cookie, mm -hmm. only like 20% of the sugar actually hits your palate. The other 80% is going straight down. Um, but at the end of this article, um, and what a lot of the, the food scientists said was, it's not gonna work. They're like, what's going to work is just eating less sugar. Um, and that's how I, that's I think a big part of sustainability and policymakers never talk about people just changing their behavior. I mean, all of the plans that I've heard American politicians talk about amazingly, I mean, even the most progressive ones don't require us to change our lifestyles at all. 
-hmm. We can drive as much as we want. We can still fly as much as we want. We can eat whatever we want. We're just going to figure out a way to make everything super eco-friendly. So I don't, I mean, the truth is I, I don't think we stand a chance if, if the science is right on what's going to happen to the climate of things being okay for most humans in the world, unless people change their lifestyles, so eating less meat, flying on fewer planes, driving fewer cars, or maybe having smaller cars, smaller houses, you know, don't keep your house at 68 degrees in July, maybe keep it at 80. Um, so I'm not too hopeful about it, um, but I think the best thing we can do is just like try to get new policies in place. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are so many people debating right now, like the effect of your individual, like your individual choices versus, you know, like voting in the right people who will actually put those policies in place. Because, um, you know, people say like companies have kind of put the burden on, you know, consumers uh when it comes to yeah. uh, the environment and stuff like that like it's because you need to do this and that um but so like has uh what you just talked about um about sustainability being i guess a like requiring greater change like has that mentality kind of uh like permeated your business or like how is it how is that done um Like, I mean, the truth is, I think we could be the greenest company on earth and it's not going to move the needle unless the policies change. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm being very transparent here. So our ice, cream, yeah, yeah. Our, our ice cream is not organic. Um, we don't use um, organic milk. We don't use organic cream. We actually did use organic egg yolks, but we just stopped and switched to cage-free. Um, that is not unique in the super premium ice cream. Um, there are absolutely no organic super premium ice creams. And I'm not an expert in like agricultural impact, but I, I think generally we can assume that organic agriculture is probably going to be better for the climate than non-organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, we, we true, well, at this point we don't, because of the size of our business and our distribution, we don't have a choice. So it's not about saying, let's be conventional and not organic so we can make an extra five points of margin. It's in the food manufacturing business, the margins are so razor thin that you don't have that kind of wiggle room. Now, if there was a regulation in place that said, if you're buying unsustainably produced products like milk and eggs and cane sugar that aren't organic, you're going to be fine. I'm not saying that economically this would work or suggesting it at all, but that could sort of even the playing field and drive us to be able to do something like that. Um, yeah. If that makes sense. But, but it's it's really frustrating because I wish we could do that. But the, the flip side, I mean, what it really comes down to is the consumer, at least the ice cream consumer, right. is has not proven to be willing to pay for organic. So Ben and Jerry's, um, Talenti have all tried actually to do organic lines and they've all failed and they cost significantly more to produce. But for some reason, the ice cream consumer doesn't value that, um, the organic wow. aspect of it, whereas the milk and egg consumer does. Mm. I mean, I, I, I would guess, and we don't have data on this, I would guess almost all Van Leeuwen customers are probably only buying organic milk and organic eggs and paying a great premium for those. Um, yeah. 
but with ice cream, um, they they don't and you know don't seem to be most people don't seem to be willing to pay that premium. Yeah, I'm wondering whether it's because you know, like when people want ice cream, like they just want really good ice cream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I think part of it is um, part of the what drives organic purchasing is you know this is better for the planet, and another part of it is this is better for my body. And I think going into eating sweets, we're like, well, this is already bad for me. I just want the yummiest thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So do you think, you know, like a lot of people these days, they want uh, even smaller businesses to be like sustainable from the get-go. Like, do you think that's realistic? Like you've grown so much at this point and it's still hard to do that. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about, you know, expectations for even smaller companies? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know how to measure sustainability, but mm -hmm. yes, I mean, I, I would love to do that. I just, I'm interested in what will actually move the needle. Um, so, and I'll get, I'll, I'll answer this question. This is just a roundabout way of doing it. In 1950, my guess is less than a tenth of, less than a tenth of a percent of Americans even thought about environmentalism or sustainability. Um, Today, I think particularly in like the millennial generations and the ones below that, and even Gen Xers, and every, you know, people are really thinking about it and really care about it and are even making decisions that they think are helping it. But if you look at the carbon emissions per person in the US since 1950, it's skyrocketed. Um, so, so, so my answer to that is yes, it's awesome if these small businesses are trying to be sustainable, but what's what's really going to move the needle? Because we, we, we've cleaned up America a lot since then. I mean, I grew up in Connecticut in the 80s and we wouldn't swim in Long Island Sound. There was a lack of, of oxygen hypoxia and it wouldn't be unusual in the summer for all the fish to die and float to the top. So it feels better. It looks better, but we've just shipped all the pollution out um mm -hmm. and we're shipping our recycling to china yeah. which feels great or now they're not even taking it anymore but when they we're taking it some of the ships were just dumping it into the ocean so um yes i mean it's every little bit helps but it feels like we're doing so much more than we were 50 years ago but both mm -hmm. because of the population because we can buy 10 t-shirts for 50 dollars that look pretty good. Um, and cotton's one of the the biggest polluter pollution crops. Um, I I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what my point here is. It's just that yes, be sustainable, do that, but without policy change that mm -hmm. kind of requires people to change their lifestyles, I just I don't think there's any hope. Gotcha. Yeah. So no, I mean, it's kind, it kind of sounds like a, a doomsday situation, but I, I think that's the type of like a hard conversation that I, or hard truth that I think a lot of people need to hear. Um, and honestly, like a lot of what drives all of this, you know, like bad consumption, bad production, also bad policy is just like the money that's being pumped into it and like the money that's at stake. Um, so what do you think about like, the huge corporations, you know, like, mm -hmm. should they, should they be more sustainable than you? Like, should we be holding them more accountable? Um, I think it, it depends on their profit margin, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
if you went to like Nestle or Unilever, you know, th their margins are even smaller than ours. You know, that's how you go to Walgreens and get two pints of Haagen-Dazs for six bucks. You know, it's, mm. um, you know, it's really, really hard to pull that off. So um, yes, I, I, I think there, you know, many of them are at least um, on the surface doing their part, but I, I don't think you could ever, I, I don't think you could ever have a policy that says, Unilever, you have to do this, but the small businesses don't, because then it would just make the playing field um, uneven. I, I, I think with food, though, um, in the last 200 years, the percentage of, I don't know the exact numbers, but the percentage of income that humans have spent on food has plummeted. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it, that um, we've sort of grown accustomed to food being really inexpensive. Mm -hmm. um, eight years ago when we were, we were making ginger, which we actually didn't use, I found a ginger supplier or a, a produce supplier and he had ginger and the organic ginger was $12 a pound. And the conventional ginger was like $1.50 a pound. And I was like, why is the organic ginger so expensive? And he's like, you shouldn't be asking that. You should be asking why the conventional ginger is so inexpensive. So I think part of it is saying, you know, in, in 1850, the average person probably had like two pairs of pants, two shirts and a coat. And when the coat tore, they fixed it. And, you know, they probably had that coat for 10 or 15 years, right? Maybe a little less. Um, so and why didn't they have as many clothes? Clothes were more expensive, food was more expensive, but you needed food, right? You didn't really need the clothes to survive. Um, so I think somehow the world needs to start spending more on, uh, I think it's like the labor aspect of food, you know, the management of farms and creating farms that are more biodiverse and organic and, and then eating less meat. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, but I think it's, 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 I mean, that would take such a huge economic change if we said, okay, guys, you have to uh, take that 13% of your income that you're spending on apparel, cut that down to 3% and start spending twice as much on food, you know? Yeah, that's hard. Um, yeah. Even, I mean, like my friends, people I know, I think they are generally starting to like, spend less on other things, you know, like buying, uh, you know, like thrifting or just like consuming less, like not using Amazon, things like that. Uh, wow, yeah. But, but, but I, I think another aspect, cause you might mm -hmm. say, okay, I'm, I'm living in New York and making minimum wage 15 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. So I'm bringing home 600 bucks a week and rent is really expensive here. You know, that the housing cost plays into that too, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if we looked at the profits on real estate, we'd probably say, okay, we need to pull a little bit of that profit out and push it towards um, more sustainable agriculture, which could be done by somehow subsidizing housing costs and then making food more expensive through requiring more sustainable agriculture. Okay, yeah. So um, just a question, you, you mentioned minimum yeah. wage and obviously that's super important. Uh, so if minimum <clears throat> wage were to increase in New York City, um, upwards of $15, like how would that affect Van Leeuwen? Um, I don't think it would, I mean, I think it would only be a good thing 
um, again, because because we get back to the like even playing field, um, right. you know, it, it would be the same for everyone. And theoretically, it would create more purchasing power in the population. So for the, you know, margin that we were losing, our volume would increase because there'd be more people with more um, income that they could use to buy ice cream or go out to dinner. Um, so I, I think it would just be a good thing. Right. Okay. And with, um, I'm just wondering how, how did Van Leeuwen uh, handle COVID? Like what, how did COVID affect your company? Um, so, I mean, it, it was, it had a huge impact. Um, more than 80% of our brick and mortar units are in New York City. Mm -hmm. And New York City was more impacted than almost anywhere in the world at the start of the pandemic. So we closed all of our stores to sort of walk up or walk in traffic and continue doing Uber Eats and Postmates and caviar deliveries. So you could order on an app and get the ice cream delivered. Um, but revenue is down over 80%. So we lost a lot of revenue. Um, we did some layoffs at the retail level. But we started reopening everything in June, or actually in May, we started reopening. And everything in New York City and Los Angeles is now reopened. Um, revenues are still down in New York by, um, depending on the store, anywhere from zero at our best stores to you know 80% at some stores. So it had a really big impact there. Um, but we are pretty proud that we were able to continue operating um, and operated really safely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, from my experience working uh, at Murray Hill, I thought like our, our sales were doing much better than I expected. Like sometimes there would be a crazy wait out the line. And I was like, whoa, people will still, still line up to buy um, Van Leeuwen even in this crazy time. Um, yeah. Yeah, but obviously people are talking about like second waves, third waves, like what, like how are you preparing for that if you are at all? Well, I mean, my, my again, I'm not like a epidemiologist or, <laughs> yeah. um, not many of us but are. <laughs> my thinking is, I don't think it could get any worse in New York than it's, than it's already been, because mm -hmm. the reason I think it was so bad in New York in yeah starting in late March is because we did absolutely nothing because nobody told us to do anything. They were like, wash your hands, wipe down all of the surfaces, don't touch anything. But they didn't tell us to start wearing masks until April. So everyone is being, or not everyone, but so many people are being so much more careful than they were before that. A lot of people aren't being careful, even in New York, but it, it couldn't be as bad. Then there's, there's a little bit of immunity, right? Um, so unless there was, which doesn't really happen with viruses, unless it like mutated to become much more transmittable or more deadly, I'm not that worried about a second or third wave being that, you know, any worse than it was then. Okay, okay, that's, um, that's Certainly, in, I mean, in the rest of the country, it's, uh -huh. it's not looking that good, but we, our only other retail is in Los Angeles. So we're in mm -hmm. there, people are being pretty careful too. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I guess taking a step 
back and just like looking at sustainability as a whole like obviously we're talking about the environment but i think it's really important to talk about social justice as well and with mm -hmm. you know um there has been so much you know like upheaval and unrest uh in recent months but like as a result of you know centuries and centuries of of you know injustice um and uh, i think recently van lewin has actively taken a stance against systemic systemic racism by partnering with ice cream for change and um i'm just wondering how that partnership is affecting you know like the uh any further actions that van lewin is going to take about systemic racism going forward mm -hmm. so i mean with, with that it's it's just money right it's giving money and deploying some of our resources to causes that or to organizations that we think can improve things a little bit but in terms of sort of how we've changed our operations since the black lives matter like took hold in a way that it never had before starting in june yeah. um I mean, a lot of things we haven't changed because we were always, I think, you know, probably not as aware as you could be after reading things and that make you think about things in ways that you hadn't before, but we've always just sort of approached hiring people and treating our employees with sort of kindness, compassion, and um, not really letting race be a part of that. but. How can we, I mean, how we can, again, this is sort of back to the climate thing. Like we want to sort of do our best to be kind, compassionate, of course, tolerant people and promote those values throughout our organization. I, I think the, the greatest change we could make is if somebody started working at Van Leeuwen who maybe wasn't at that level and suddenly was exposed to people who were and who were more tolerant and said, you know what, like, I sort of changed my mind, but um, in terms of fixing it again, I think it comes back to like education and opportunity, which policy is going to drive. Um, I mean, I think education is like the, the biggest part of it. I think that's making the playing field so, so unequal in this country. And then the part of it is that we're not um, as focused on, we, we don't let the federal government drive policy a lot of policies here which creates education that's really different in different places and even within states you know can be so different from one city to another and that's going to completely change your opportunities in lives and I, I i don't i don't know how to fix that right right um so we've talked to ben and jerry's in the past and obviously they're super uh they're super active when it comes to like speaking out about uh you know, social injustice and racism, and they're also doing great ice cream. Um, do you think it is the, do you think it is the responsibility, um, it is a responsibility for companies to be taking a stance against racism um, or, you know, changing their own internal culture? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I think it's everyone's responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess if you, if you feel that way, I mean, if you, are racist, I'd rather you not take a stance and say that. Um, although I guess hopefully it would really hurt their business. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's important. I think it's also important. I mean, I think at this point, 
it's important to take a political stance. Um, I know a lot of companies won't do that because we need our revenue, right? And our revenue probably doesn't only come from people who are supporting Biden in this election. So we haven't publicly done that on Instagram yet, but um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't think we're planning on it. Um, again, but, but, but then when I think about that kind of stuff too, is that, is that something that's going to make us feel good and have no impact um, or is it going to have an impact? You know, if we came out and said, vote for Biden, because sometimes when I see the vote, 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 vote thing, vote, get out the vote. I'm kind of like, guys, I know, I know about your business. I know what you stand for. You're liberal, you're democratic. Like, you're not really like, because I actually, the truth is like, please don't vote if you're going to vote for Trump. Like, really don't. Like right now, like, you know, it used to be okay. Socially, we have different ideas. And in terms of economic policy, we have different ideas. But to me now, it's just more black and white, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly with the environmental stuff and the social stuff and, and just the American brand around the world. And yeah. Yeah. Um. So yes, I think companies do have a res well, yeah, do have a responsibility to certainly speak out about like social justice and racism. I also think it's in companies' interests to help change that. Um, you know, a more a more just country where the wealth is more evenly spread is going to be a much better country for business. You know, there's going to be a lot less money sitting in pockets of fat at the top and it's going to sort of get dispersed and there'll be more spending power. So it's a good thing. Yeah. And I think this, uh, this pandemic has definitely shown us the even greater wealth disparity um, in this country and how like people, the most rich people have only gotten richer during uh, this pandemic, but obviously um, mm. so many people have lost jobs and are under unemployment. Um, yeah. so I think what you said is really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking yeah, like, there's, yeah. Um, well, yeah, the wealthy Americans are more philanthropic than the wealthy class in any other country. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of because they're forced to, because the policies allow that much wealth to be created here that, you know, I think many of them who are compassionate, empathetic people and say, Jesus, how did I end up with $150 billion? <laughs> you know, like I can't <laughs> use this and I need to, but the problem with that is that's putting like the onus for change on them. So it's a risk, right? You know, which is kind of the same thing I feel, whereas it shouldn't be that way. We should have policies that don't put the risk on there. So if you get a billionaire who's a really good person, great. They're gonna start a foundation, do this, and hopefully they execute it well. But if you get someone who maybe is less thoughtful, they're not gonna do that. And, and that's sort of why, I, you know, when I think about the environmental responsibility of corporations in the same way, it's great to say corporate responsibility. You have to be environmentally responsible and do this, but you get a good CEO, then you get a bad CEO or a CEO cares about that and don't like it's, it's very risky. Whereas if policies didn't allow companies to operate in an environmentally unsustainable way, then it wouldn't even be a choice whether the CEO cared about the environment or whether they didn't care the you know, the impact on, of that business would be the same. You know, I, I agree that uh, perhaps people like companies or businesses making statements saying like vote, vote, vote is super important. But at the same time, I, uh, I think the real thing is like we need to vote in the right people. 
Um, but yeah, yeah uh, but also you said that it's hard for pe for businesses to like make that, you know, very strong stance. Like you should vote for Biden and Harris. Um, there are just like so many things that I think companies want to do uh, in terms of sustainability, yeah. whether that's like the environment, racial justice, but at the same time, just is not economically feasible, perhaps. But oh man, I don't, I don't, I don't really even know where I'm going with this. But yeah, no, that 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 there's no answer, and I, I still think it's great <laughs> to say vote, 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 vote. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I did see yesterday Food Baby, who's a New York City Instagram influencer, yeah, posted or a food influencer posted a picture of his kids stomping on Trump and Pence cookies, cookies with their faces. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. Someone's actually like, you know, has the guts to say it, you know, who has a lot yeah. of followers and people got really angry. I, and I was shocked that I was like, oh my gosh, um, mm -hmm. people were really unhappy about that. Wow. And that's not even like, are they, uh, they're a food Instagrammer you said? Or they're- yeah. Yeah, food Instagrammer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right, so maybe uh, taking a step back from politics a little bit, we can talk more about Van Leeuwen. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, you know, Van Leeuwen is growing a lot and uh, does, you know, when we're talking about environmental sustainability, a lot of it is also like how far food is traveling. And mm -hmm. uh, have you thought about you know, whether or not Van Leeuwen can go global and what type of impact that would have? Or, you know, mm -hmm. like where do you even want Van Leeuwen to be on that spectrum? Like local or global? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we would absolutely love to. I mean, we want to be as big as we possibly can. Um, the impact of going global would be, you know, wouldn't necessarily change our um, carbon footprint per unit because we would like most companies that are at any scale outside of the US, we wouldn't manufacture here for the global market. So we would manufacture for Europe and Europe and um, Asia in Asia and her probably, probably actually Asia, maybe even in New Zealand. A lot of dairy is produced there that goes to Asia because they're really good dairy. Um, but with that said, um, I mean, the least impactful way to do it would be if we were producing everything and selling it within, you know, 90 miles of where we were producing it. And, you know, we're not doing that now. And, you know, we're sort of beyond that even being an option for our business. Um, so, you know, that, that's the best way. I mean, the other huge part of it is um, not only reusable packaging, um, and I, I've never looked at data on this, but sort of environmentally sustainable packaging is awesome but you know I, i'm at the ice cream factory right now so downstairs there's 5,000 square feet of production and ingredients coming in and finished product going out every single day and what i'm always like shocked by and you know it's so gutting to see is the waste from our raw materials coming in whether it's plastic pails that egg yolks come in or even just the brown polylined paper bags that sugar come in um, and that's what, you know, the consumer doesn't see. So certainly let's try to make our impact on um, 
with what the end you with the retail customer uses the packaging better but the again like the less sexy stuff is like how are these ingredients getting to us um and because a hundred years ago reusable packaging wasn't a thing sugar would come in oak barrels and you take the lid off and they'd reuse it um you know milk would come in big metal cans um so we're we're constantly thinking about that and looking into better ways to do that so this spring we're setting up a pump system which will allow us to get milk in huge um 2500 pound totes that are reusable so the milk will get delivered we'll pump it out it's also a lot less expensive because you're not paying for plastic bags right that are fairly thick because if you have 50 pounds of milk in a bag it has to be kind of thick um, so, so, so that, so just, just the waste of that is really, really impactful. Um, and I think part of that comes down to, you know, the, the labor cost is so high in the U S, um, that we often say operationally, it's when you look at the operational cost of using this packaging, that's reusable, if you're the, if you're the vendor who's delivering something it's actually cheaper to just give them something disposable because if it's not, we have to pay our, you know, delivery drivers to pick it up, then we have to clean it. Um, so that's sort of a, I mean, that, that's a very basic way of looking at economics, right? It's just looking at economics from dollar and cents, but not looking at economics from, there's a really, really scarce resource and that's the planet, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once that's not giving to us anymore, we're totally done. So it's short term, but it's the way our economy operates. Um, and that's what we need to change, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because I something I noticed when I was working at the stores was that, uh, you know, Van Leeuwen uses like compostable straws and uh, spoons and things like that. And even the, 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 like the box that you can put like four pints in. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was made with some biodegradable, what was it, corn something? Um, yeah, it's made of non-GMO corn. Non-GMO corn, yeah. which I was like, whoa. So it seems that, you know, Van Leeuwen is thinking a lot about this stuff. But what struck me was, you know, like sustainability is used as a marketing ploy these days. Like pretty much any, yeah. you know, brand that comes out is really just like, I want to, you know, like I need to like stamp put a green stamp on whatever I sell because otherwise people people won't think it's okay to buy um but I've been interested in how uh Van Leeuwen hasn't really done that and whether that was like an active choice to never like really uh brand themselves as like sustainable or you know it was just felt natural not to. yeah I mean it's, it's a combination of probably a, a little bit of a marketing fail on our part but I think it also comes from us not wanting to be full of shit you know like mm -hmm. buying food in single use packaging whether that single use packaging is biodegradable or not yeah. isn't a good sustainable thing you yeah. know yes we only use sugar cane or corn lined cups in our store and the it, which is so much better right so it's going to go into a landfill probably because we're not doing the industrial compost in new york city and eventually it'll break down. Whereas if it was polyline, it wouldn't, wasn't. So it's, but, but what, I mean, what would, what would really help is if we just didn't offer single use stuff and you got a cup, 
stainless steel bowl and you ate it. And we actually used to offer that, but um, customers just didn't want it. They wanted the convenience of the takeaway cup so they could leave, which makes sense. You know, that's what we're used to. Um, so I, I think part of it is that, you know, and maybe we should do a better job of marketing everything we do that is a little better than the alternative. But right. I mean, I mean, and this is a bit of, you know, me just being hope, well, not hopeless, but feeling like it's really bad and just the, the lifestyle that most people lead isn't one that's gonna yeah. you know, work for the next hundred years. And COVID has obviously made things harder, like to, to you know, yeah. to do reasonable things. You know, yeah. like I just bring a coffee cup wherever I went, but now obviously you can't do that. But I was just gonna say what, you know, the, the way I think about these things too, if, you know, if I, if I was the dictator, the, the country <laughs> to just decide what everyone did. I would sort of first look at these things which wouldn't make our life that much worse, you know? Mm. So, you know, for example, if it was the law that you had to bring your own plate and bowl and cup and fork and spoon to everywhere you ate, like it would be annoying, but like, I don't think it would make anyone less happy. Um, right. You know, if you said, okay, you, you can't go on planes anymore, that's a big one, right? Like a lot of people love to travel and a lot of people became used to that. That has a big impact. But I think looking at these things and figuring out what's really, what's really making people happy and like, you know, is being able to buy 30 new outfits a year truly making people happy? Probably not that much, right? Yeah. People probably wouldn't in a deep way be any less happy with less clothes. So, um, so yeah, how, how do we look at that stuff? And then how do we, figure out how to repair the disruptions to the economy that mm-hmm. policies like that would change, right? Because someone's making these single use cups and spoons and makes, you know, it's a lot of people's livelihoods. So we can't just pull the plug on it and say, get lost. That wasn't good for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this issue is so complicated and that's why I'm glad we're getting yeah. to talk to people like you who like have an over, like, you know, you oversee a lot more than, or you see a lot more than most people do. Um, so I, you know, this conversation conversation didn't definitely didn't like go where I was expecting it to, but I'm glad that it didn't because you were so transparent. Mm-hmm. transparent Did us. you think it was just going to be like, we use sugar cane lined cups and straws and we're a super eco-friendly company. <laughs> no, I think we're as, yeah. Yeah. I, I will say we're as eco-friendly as we can be. And, and, yeah. and we do spend more money to do that. Um, so that's good, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I was mostly just thinking like, like uh, you were going to talk about like how you think about sustainability within your company in general, like just within your company. But hearing you talk about, you know, like the really the greater actors at play that are controlling things beyond, sometimes beyond our control and like what really needs to happen um, was refreshing to hear, to be honest. Um, but yeah. We have one uh, question in the Q&A. Um, from Emily Dobson. Uh, I think we can end on that. And she says, I know Van Leeuwen's dairy and non-dairy ice cream costs the same from checking your website, but generally non-dairy products tend to be slightly more expensive. What do you think is the best way to encourage people to educate themselves on the pros and cons of dairy versus non-dairy products? So they are aware of the environmental impacts such as land required water consumption of dairy versus non-dairy products um, that may be spending an extra dollar or two um, on a non-dairy product might be better uh, in the long run in terms of sustainability. Mm-hmm. I mean, the answer to that is like, 
cut the corn, cut, cut like the grain subsidies, cut the dairy subsidies, figure out how to cut those in a way that isn't going to ruin a lot of farmers' lives. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, and then use those subsidies for environmental restoration. And then suddenly you'll have a dairy ice cream that's a lot more expensive. Um, you know, we're using milk and cream that are not only subsidized, but where the cows are eating subsidized grains. You know, we're using egg yolks where the chickens are eating subsidized grains. Um, you know, much of which is, you know, yes, it's cage-free, it's local milk and cream, a lot of it's grass-fed, but a lot of this stuff is, you know, very industrial farming, you know, to, to, regardless of the label on it and causes a lot of damage. Um, so how do you do that? Again, it comes down to like economic policy stuff. Um, the, you should not be able to buy an 18% butterfat, 6% egg yolk ice cream for what we're charging. The cost is so much higher than that, but our government is subsidizing that and they're not subsidizing the vegan. Yeah. And I'm not even saying subsidize the vegan. I'm saying, let's figure, you know, figure out where that money could go. Okay, yeah. To, to so was it an active choice to make, you know, vegan ice cream the same cost as uh, um, dairy? It was, well, yeah, I mean, it was not, we decided to do it. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of par for the course in the ice cream business to keep your products, your, your lines, you know, it's kind of the same line, they're pints, they're 14 ounces, you want them to be priced the same. We were excited because at one point the vegan ice cream was more expensive and we were able to purchase things in larger containers, which was more ecologically or less ecologically impactful too. So that was a plus. And um, that helped us bring the price down too. Um, I don't, I, I guess the question I'm asking myself now is, is there a, is, the, is there a customer who's ever saying, I'm gonna get the vegan because it's less expensive than the ice cream. The other thing to think about with these like food and animal products is, um, can we, can we think le in a less extreme way? And can we say, can we make a, which we haven't started on and doing yet, but can we make a dairy ice cream? That's sort of like a dairy vegan hybrid. That's like giving the ice cream lover everything they want from dairy, that taste, that texture, but we're not using as much dairy. We're not using as much eggs. And we're sort of replacing that with plant proteins. So UCLA, which is like always rated as the best food of any college in the country um, for their hamburgers, it's cut with 40% grains and vegetables um, for all the meat in their campus. So it brings the meat consumption way down and people still really like it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think people tend to see sustainability as like black and white, but there are ways to kind of like ease towards, you know, becoming more sustainable, but not exactly having to trade off everything. Um, yeah, well, I'm really, uh, I'm really happy that we had this talk and that people got to hear uh, what you had to say because you offered a lot of really incredible insight. Um, it, yeah, thank you for speaking to us. Uh, I will be getting Van Leeuwen once I go back to the city this weekend. Um, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much. Ben, okay, thank you. Thank, thank, thanks for it. having me.
it was it was so so great you spent time with us and and i'm sure like yeah. your transparency and your honesty will be really appreciated especially by this crowd so uh, really refreshing thanks a lot